had the privilege last week of going out and preaching again. It's been a while for me. The last time I opened air preached was at Oktoberfest. And an old friend of mine that used to go out with me looked me up and said, we need to get back out on the streets. I'm going out. I've got the permits in Charlotte. Would you come with me? And I was excited to go. Eric and I went down on Tuesday. He, my friend uses the paintboard, which I've always liked. Okay, in this day and time, when you have right wing and left wing and everybody's so uh, divided and everybody's protesting something, the paintboard actually makes you look like something other than our society has become. I don't ever want to look like a protester when I go out and preach the gospel. I'm not. That's why I don't dress head to toe in what we call combat gear, street preacher combat gear. You know, the fluorescent colors and the provocative messages and the stupid looking hats. Uh, I'm not carrying around big signs or banners. Uh, I don't want to look like a protester. We're preachers. And I've always liked the paint board for that reason. But we had a great time. And here's the interesting thing. Um, Eric and I wore shirts with Hebrew. I had Israel on my shirt. He had a Hebrew saying on his shirt. And we thought we had a little table out there with books and tracks. And I thought just to stick a Hebrew New Testament up there. The likelihood of somebody coming by was rare. But those things tend to catch the eye of Jewish people either an eye of curiosity or an eye of hatred, but it catches the eye. It's got a power to do that, and sure enough, it did. We had encounters with two Jewish folks. One man was encouraged by our shirts and came up and shook our hand, but the nanosecond, the nanosecond that I mentioned Yeshua, he did a 180 turn and walked fast, as fast down the street as he could. Probably could have won a couple hundred meter dashes <laughs> as fast as he walked away. So we did our job, Gentiles provoking the children of Israel to jealousy. Another was a young lady who came by three times. The third time she approached and asked if we were Jewish and what we were doing, and her eye kept going to that New Testament. We explained to her why we appreciate the Jewish people, not because we want to convert or we want to celebrate their festivals or we think they're better than the rest of the people on the planet. We appreciate the Jewish people because... God used them to write down the scriptures. Every book of the Old Testament, every book of the New Testament was written either by a Jewish prophet or an eyewitness. And for that reason, we can know who the true God is and we can know who the Messiah is. And I told her, Yeshua is the Jewish Messiah. And I said, I've got to warn you, as a Gentile who's found the Messiah, that there are very, very dark days coming for Israel. Everything that you've seen built over there will be destroyed and the false Messiah is coming. So we just want you folks to know what's coming and to put your trust in the Messiah. And she was very interested, but she was from New York City and was on a business commute, on business in Charlotte. You come down in the morning, you fly back in the evening. And uh, she didn't have anything but a small purse, didn't have room for that Bible. I tried to give it to her, but I encouraged her to write me when she got home so I could send it to her. I'm praying she will. But we were able to be a witness just by putting a Hebrew New Testament on a table to somebody on business who was shocked to see some Gentiles preaching. We're going back on Tuesday. Eric and I are going to meet Kent back down there again. If anybody's interested, let me know. We'll be back out on the streets. So it's a privilege. Um, after that, Eric and I visited an elderly man who's disabled. He lives in Charlotte. He's Jewish. He's an IDF war vet. Fought in the Yom Kippur War. He's got a couple of kids in Israel now. His wife died. He's a believer. 
He's rough around the edges, but he's a believer. And uh, we came to meet this guy. He lives alone. I provided him a case of Bibles. He's given a few out already. We just showed up at his house and thought that an elderly gentleman or an old, a disabled gentleman might enjoy some company. So we sat with him for the afternoon, took him out to dinner, and it was just a good time of fellowship. And uh, maybe one day somebody can go down and pick him up and bring him to church. He said he would be interested to worship with us. But a guy that's seen it, a guy that's had some confrontations with the rabbis, and hearing about some of these things had me in the floor, rolling in the floor, laughing. It was such a blessing. And so these type of things, I'm just encouraged to be a part of in these dark days. And sometimes we can get away from it. But there's, there's a, a blessing in going out and lifting up our voices. So pray for us on Tuesday. And it's a good warm-up. I'm hoping we can do more of that this summer. Our country's in a mess. That was so clear to us as we preached on Saturday, the, I mean on Tuesday, the country is in a mess. Charlotte is so apathetic. I mean, I couldn't stir those people up if my life depended upon it. Ask Eric. I said some things preaching that should stir people up. One of the things that I was very clear to make known is that we don't need a president in this country. We need the Messiah. We need the Messiah. And as I study these scriptures and prepare for these messages, that becomes so clear. This nation's under judgment. While I was preparing this message, putting the final touches on this message this morning, my phone was sitting beside me. I need to just turn it off. I like to know what's going on. I like to see what's in the mind of our president, so I subscribe to his tweets. But that phone just kept four or five tweets on a Sunday morning. And I'm like, shut up already. And then I got to thinking on a sidetrack, you know, this Twitter and social media, and I had just posted last Sunday's sermon up there, and it came to me that this is what social media is in our country. If you're going to social media for knowledge and education and truth, it's going to be very, very hard to find. There's some things out there, but very hard to find. And the Lord brought to my mind, I don't know why, it just came to my mind this image. When I was in kindergarten and first grade, I went to Thornton Elementary, which is over there near Newton Conover. And I remember that... I think Katie's mom was a substitute teacher over there, a teacher's aide. No, she's a teacher. Okay, maybe, a okay, that's it. And in first grade, we took a trip to the zoo in Asheboro. And this was a long time ago. That zoo was very different back then. But there was a big open area with the chimpanzees. And there was a wall, but it was only about this high. And there were a few of us that thought it would be funny to pick up some dirt clods or some grass clods and throw them into the pen at the chimpanzees. And what ended up happening was these chimps got angry and they began to chuck it at each other and back at us. I mean, with a, with a ferocity. Maybe it's exaggerated in my mind, but my mom was there. And so all of a sudden these chimps just went crazy and are throwing mud and dirt at each other and at us. 
And so don't throw dirt clods, don't throw grass, don't throw feces at monkeys, okay? Just don't do it. They'll get you back. But I kind of thought about that as I was getting these tweets, and I realized, you want to know what social media is in this country? It's a bunch of monkeys throwing feces at each other. That's what it is. And the president, we need to pray for him, but he's like that dumb little schoolboy that picks up the grass and throws it in there, like me. And that's what we are. That's where we are as a country. I really, really honestly believe there's no remedy. We need to preach the gospel. And we need to preach what is coming. We need to be watchmen. A watchman warns the wicked. We preach the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm guilty of this as much as the next man. I don't mind declaring these things. I will declare these things to both Jew and Gentile. But I believe I also need to warn them. I believe we need to warn these Israelis about what's coming. <clears throat> warn the wicked about what's coming. And Jesus is the means to escape it. So these things just kind of came to my mind. And I thought about Israel. We look at Israel. We see the judgments that God brought against her. Those reveal to us the judgments that come upon nations that turn their back on God. We're not like the heathen nations here in America because we knew God. We received the truth. We know the truth and we've turned our back upon it. The heathen nations have never known the truth. But like Israel, we've committed a double crime. But unlike Israel, there is no promise from God where the end of this nation's story is blessing. There's no promise. The end is not blessing. And you know, one of the things God told Israel he would do to them if he turned, they turned their back upon him was in Leviticus chapter 26. In Leviticus 26, 22, this is by way of introduction. I have the world's longest introduction. He says, I will, in verse 21, if you will walk contrary to me and I will not, and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. So God says, I'll, if you won't listen to me, I'll bring seven times more upon you than what you can conceive. I will also, verse 22, send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. That's pretty scary. I don't know what that means. But God said he'd send wild beasts among them to rob them of their children, to destroy their crops, to make trouble for them. These are judgments God passes on nations. And if he would do that for his covenant people, how much more so upon those nations that know the truth and turn their back upon them? I stumbled across an article the other day where apparently great white sharks are now congregating off the coast of North and South Carolina. If you go to the beach this summer, I would advise not swimming in the ocean. See, great whites are tagged and... 23 of the great whites that have been tagged have recently been tracked to within 50 miles of the North and, Carol North and South Carolina coast. And these are some of the biggest great whites that have ever been tagged in the Atlantic Ocean. And when you think about some of the stuff that hovers off the coast of South Africa, that's kind of scary. And it just brought this verse to mind. All of these judgments are happening and we don't even see them. How many more earthquakes? How many more shootings? How many more tornadoes that rip apart entire towns? 
how many weird things like uh, great white sharks congregate. I'll be very surprised if the summer goes by and there's not attacks and deaths. But we don't care. We just we don't even stop and pause and cry out to the Lord like Israel in the book of Judges. We just go about our business, explain it away, global warming, Green New Deal. None of this could possibly be the judgment of God. But these things are the judgment of God. We can't see them because we're monkeys throwing feces at one another. We need to be different. And to be different means embracing these things we're learning about. Not turning away from prophecy and eschatology because we're, we don't have an answer to every question, but declaring it, resting in it, waiting upon it. Old Testament salvation, when we talk about faith, was in the sense of waiting. It was those that waited upon the Lord. That's the essence of faith. Not believing in Jesus not believing in God, but waiting upon Him, content to wait, believing Him. And as those Old Testament saints waited for the Messiah's first coming in faith, we look to Him for our salvation looking back in faith, but we ought to be waiting, waiting for His second coming, preaching it, declaring it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, sometimes people quote verse 9 and they, they don't go on to verse 10 and thereby they take it out of its primary context. But it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. This is a quotation of Isaiah 64, 4. The things God has prepared for those that wait for Him. You see, here the Holy Spirit writes a commentary on His own Word. What is it to wait on the Lord? It's to trust Him. It's to trust Him. To love Him. We can't even conceive of the things that God has prepared for us in the coming kingdom. Most people stop there. But, verse 10, God has revealed them unto us, the church. By His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. I can't conceive, ear can't hear of the things God has prepared for those that love Him, but He's revealed them to us, the church, by His Spirit. By His Spirit in His Word. These things are revealed to us. I'm not going to be dogmatic about every detail concerning the millennial kingdom as I share with you some things about the form of government, the seat of government, the, the, the changes to the land of Palestine, things like that. I'm not going to be dogmatic about every detail, but God reveals these things to us. We can know details. We can know what's prepared for us because it's right here, and He reveals it to us through His Spirit. The natural man, it says later, can't understand these things. That's why people, when confronted with the Scriptures, are so blind because they're natural. Only by the Spirit of God can we understand the Scriptures. But he that is spiritual, verse 15, judges all things. Don't let somebody throw Matthew 7 in your face. Judge not that you be not judged. Those of us that have the Spirit judge all things. And we ought to be willing to do this, yet he himself is judged of no man. 
Don't let anybody judge you in respect of what day you worship the Lord and in respect of what you eat or drink. Paul said, let no, let no man judge you. But yet we judge all things. And we can judge all things by the Word of God. And that's why we study it the way we do. We study it exegetically. There are times for topical sermons. There are times for dealing with issues. Uh, my dad preached on abortion not long ago. And I think abortion is something we ought to cry against from the pulpit every Sunday in some form or another. But we teach the scriptures exegetically, verse by verse. And in doing so, that will take us to other places in the scriptures. Like last week when I summarized the book of Judges. That was an interesting study because in Judges, a cycle began with Israel. A downward spiral. And that cycle has continued to this present day. Except for a couple intervening periods when Messiah was here. That cycle started and it's just a repeat, repeat, repeat. Broken record, broken record, broken record. It's appropriate to our study of Christ's kingdom because Christ's kingdom is the end of that cycle. It's the end of it. The last and final judge brings judgment in such a way that the cycle ends. And those things are a joy to us and bring all of the scriptures together. All of the Old Testament's prophetic, every bit of it. If it's not a prophetic type, it's a prophetic picture. Or it's prophetic words in detail about future events. History is always prophetic because history involves people with a human, corrupt, idemic nature. History involves the conspiratorial aims of the devil and his agents. Therefore, all history is prophetic. We can know what's going to happen, not so much the details, but we can know what's going to happen by looking at history and human nature. And therefore, not all of Israel's history is preserved in the Old Testament. It tells us when we read about the kings, you know, there were other things they did that's written down in this book or that book or this book or that book. Those were not preserved. The purpose of the Old Testament was not to preserve Israel's history or every detail therein, but to be a prophetic picture of who God is. And those elements of its history that were prophetic always point to future events. David's struggles that he writes about in the Psalms are prophetic pictures of the struggles that await Israel and the faithful remnant during the tribulation. Everything you read here is prophecy. That's why the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Let's don't avoid it. That's what we're trying to understand and study here. And it takes us to different places in the Bible. And it makes for long, long, long introductions like today. So let's go to Revelation 20, verse 4. I want to dive right in. Don't go swimming. If you go to the beach, be very careful. I don't go swimming in waters with great white sharks. That's why I never went swimming on the south or west coast of South Africa the times I was there. No thank you. I'll climb a mountain with glaciers and ice and ropes and nasty, scary-looking crevasses that Bethany and I could peer down in not knowing if they're going to collapse. I'll do that, but I'm not getting in the water where there's sharks. Just not going to do it. That's not me. Revelation 20, verse 4. We talked about the incarceration of Satan. We kind of got into this. Satan is cast into the abyss for a thousand years so he can deceive the nations no more. The nations remain, but they're not going to be able to be deceived by him during this period. 
And then John describes what he sees. In verse 4, he sees two companies. These companies are very interesting. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them. That's the first company. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they, both companies, lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So John sees thrones and those sitting upon them, one company. And he sees the souls of those that were beheaded. Those souls again lived. And with and both companies lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Here we have two companies that are part of the millennial government. Part of the millennial administration. We're going to talk more about what that government looks like. It's not a democracy. It's not even a constitutional republic. It's not even a monarchy. It's a theocracy. It's a theocracy. And we're going to talk about that. Israel was supposed to be a theocracy. But unfortunately, it was administered by fallen men. This is a theocracy where God reigns through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the government is administered not by fallen men, but by resurrected and immortal saints who no longer sin. So there can't be any corruption. No corruption in the government, but there will be corruption in the governed. Thrones and those that sat upon them, that's the church. Judgment was given to them. The church has a role in the millennium. Judicial authority. That's what Jesus is talking about in the parables of the talents. Judicial authority. We're given authority. Those of us that have rewards and have shown ourselves good stewards here on earth will be given more authority in that kingdom. Do you want to be in charge of the janitors of the, of the new city or would you like to rule over an entire province? Serve the Lord here. Be one who is a servant and follow Christ faithfully here and your reward will be authority. Thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. That word judgment there in the original language connotes condemnation and punishment or vengeance. The role of the church is judicial authority to render judgment against those that disobey the law of the land. There will be those that disobey. Those that follow the law of the millennial kingdom will be blessed. Those nations that don't, there will be consequences. There's a few verses that shed light on the place of the church. Those that sit upon the thrones with judgment in the millennium. Let's look at a few passages this morning. I'm actually going to have some of you read for me this morning. So Matthew, if you'll go to Matthew 19, 28 through 30. Gene, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. Bob, if you'll read Psalm 149, 
And Robert, if you'll look at Jude verses 14 and 15. So these are kind of long passages, but they're very appropriate. So Matthew 29, I mean Matthew 19, 28 through 30. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the generation, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Every one that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's the millennial kingdom. Those faithful to Jesus that follow him, particularly his apostles right here, they'll sit on 12 thrones judging the nation of Israel during the millennium. They'll have a special role in the government of Israel. We will be those that sit in judgment on the Gentile, over the Gentile nations, magistrates per se. And if you forsake things for Christ in this life, you'll receive them back a hundredfold in the kingdom. That ought to motivate us. That ought to motivate us. We'll be like Job's end. Job's end was double everything he had before. That ought to motivate us. I want to look briefly at Luke 22 before we go into those other verses because there's a little bit longer passage here, but there's some interesting truth. Luke 22, verses 25 through 34. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. Those of us that have authority in the church, in the body of Christ, are not to exercise it like the Gentile rulers do. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is the chief as he that doth serve. Leadership in the body of Christ is to serve. Not lording over God's heritage like so many of these preachers and popes and Catholics and cardinals. The entire makeup of the Catholic Church defies what Jesus says here. And a lot of, there's a lot of Baptists that would preach against the Catholic Church and the Pope, but these little Baptist preachers have set themselves up in a place of authority in their local church that they may as well be a Pope because everybody follows the man. And that's a danger in any ministry because people are want to follow a man. That's why you've had this huge mess out of that church with James McDonald. Wrote some great things, but fell into what Jesus warned about here. And so when things go wrong, people follow the man. People follow the man. Not, not amongst us. It's not shouldn't be so. For whether is greater, verse 27, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. This is something that Israel can't comprehend, is that Messiah would come as a servant first. They can't see it, even though the Scriptures reveal it in the Old Testament. Ye are they which have continued me in my temptations, and so I appoint unto you a kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus said, look, you're appointed now to suffer with me, but I have appointed you a kingdom. You will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a special place for the apostles 
but it applies to us as the Gentile church with regard to judicial administration of the kingdom over the world. It's interesting to keep reading because there's some important truth here. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Here we have a prime time example of why the these and the thous and the yous and the yees in the King James Bible are important. Prime example. Because the modern English language has degraded in such a fashion that what the scriptures are teaching here have been confused. Modern English is strange. We were looking at an old 1611 King James Bible replica the other night at the homeschool. And if you look at it, it's weird because in the old English text, if you see the letter S in the middle of a word, it looks like more like an F than it does an S. But if an S is at the end of the word, it looks like our S. You have some other things like a capital J looks more like an I. This comes from Latin. And those principles even come from Hebrew in the ancient language. Many of the ancient languages differentiated between an S in the middle of the word and a final S at the end of the word. Even Hebrew today. There are several letters that have a form that's used when it's the beginning or middle of a word. And when that same letter is used at the end of a word, it, it looks different. So that's characteristics of languages from time immemorial. Modern English has gotten basic and sloppy. It's mostly slang. Okay? People can't write anymore. People write like they talk. That blows my mind as a formal English teacher. I dread the day in the dojo when one of the students for Black Belt has to write an essay because I know that means hours and hours of work for me trying to turn spoken English into written English. Just went through that with Jennifer. Went through it with these guys. That's the curse and the blessing of an English teacher. But here we have an interesting thing. If you're reading the King James Bible, here's an interesting thing to remember. The T words, thee and thou, Second person plural, I mean, second person pronoun, you. Thee and thou is singular, it's one. You, if you see a Y word, you or ye, that is plural, second person. In modern English, I could say, you listen up. You don't know if I'm talking to one person or everybody in this room. The context would have to render that. It's very clear who Jesus is talking about and who he's talking to here because of the the versus the you. Now, in Greek and Hebrew, there's a different word for you first person, or you singular, and you plural. In Spanish, in the poly, different word. Modern English is the same. We in the South have remedied it. You and y'all. So y'all is actually more grammatically specific. I make no apologies for it. So, if we were to read these verses in Southern English, it would say, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have y'all. Satan wants all of you apostles. That he may sift y'all, every one of you, as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you specifically that thy faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. So what Jesus in talking about leadership and being a servant appoints Peter to be the leader here. And he points him to be a leader because he wants Peter's faith and his service to the others to strengthen the rest of them. Because Satan's not going after Peter. He's going after all of them. And you know what we see in the book of Acts? We don't see Peter acting like a pope. He wasn't the first person. We say Peter the servant. Peter made some mistakes. Peter was willing to listen to a rebuke from Paul and didn't get his panties in a wad and go home. Peter was the one willing to go preach to the Gentiles. Peter didn't assume the seat of authority at the Jerusalem council, but it was his faith. He was arrested and put in prison that strengthened the rest of the disciples. So there are those of us in leadership that we should be held to a higher standard. People are watching us. Satan wants everybody in this room, and there's some of us that need to step up to the plate because people are looking to us. And if we'll handle things properly, it'll be easier for them to do so. We need to remember that when we go out preaching the gospel. Sometimes we can be so staunch and just, this is the way it is, and ready to rebuke believers that don't have everything figured out. And we got to remember we're shepherds tending the flocks of sheep in the body of Christ. And sheep have to be led gently sometimes. They have to be led gently. These are hard things. But this is the type of leadership we use and exercise now so that we're ready to do it right in the kingdom that's coming. What does Peter do immediately after? Here, here, uh, Strengthen your brethren. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the crock shall not crow this day because that thou, you, per, you specifically, shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And then he goes on. We go on to see what Peter does immediately after that. But the these and the thou's, if you see thee or thou in the King James is one person. You or ye is more than one. So Jesus... Satan's after all of the disciples. Jesus is praying specifically for Peter to step up to the plate. Interesting insight there that's very clear in this old English. Just because English is old doesn't mean it's worthless. Usually that which is old is valuable in everything else. But it doesn't seem to be with God's word. Because people want to water it down. They want to water it down. Just like in martial arts, people want to water stuff down and make it easy. Peter denies Christ. There is a very interesting sight in Jerusalem that not a whole... Tour buses go there, but it's not one of the main sites. But it is one of the few in Jerusalem that's actually authentic. And it's a place, it's an Orthodox church called St. Peter in Galancantu. It's, it's on the hillside... Uh, just above the Valley of Gehenna, it was not very far, near the Zion Gate of the old city. And it's on the steep side of the mountain where there's an Orthodox church that was erected on a site where Jesus supposedly was held overnight um, in Caiaphas' house. 
and they've done some excavation around there and discovered that was Caiaphas's house. There was a dungeon down there where there's pillars dating back to the time of Christ. And you can see the, uh, the holes in the pillars. It was a place where people were chained up in hell. And there's a pillar. They're, they're on both sides of the hallway. They're symmetrical, but there's one pillar missing. And that pillar was cut out. If you look back at some ancient records and stuff, it was cut out. And it was actually displayed as, as the pillar of Christ was attached to centuries and centuries ago. And then that thing eventually, I don't even know what happened to it. But there was a pillar cut out of there to be memorialized. And there's a, there's a dungeon down there. And there's also a set of steps that lead up from the valley of the Kidron Valley where uh, Gethsemane was. There, there are a set of steps that lead up that, that date back to the time of Christ. And so these are actually the very steps that the officers and Judas who arrested Christ in Gethsemane would have led him up to Caiaphas' house. So you're actually going down into a dungeon where Jesus himself was held. No question. Authentic. Very interesting. But outside of somewhere on that site is where Peter would have been sitting and have denied Christ. So you can, it's called St. Peter in Galenconto. It's an interesting place, worth going to. We went to it two or three times and we never could get into the dungeon because all these Orthodox pilgrims go down there and they get down in there and do all this mumbo-jumbo superstitious stuff. We can't even get in there. So it's kind of a pain, but very interesting place to visit on a side note. And then Jesus goes on in Luke 22 you're going to deny me, Peter. And then he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. Then he said unto them, But now he that has a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip. And he that has no sword, let him sell one, sell his garment, and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, go buy one. And they said, Lord, we have two swords here. That's enough for what you need it for. I think if we, need, if we don't have a sword, we need to go buy one. If you don't have a gun, go buy one. One or two is enough. There's a time to take a stand. What Jesus wanted to ensure for his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane was not the ability or the resources to start a revolution, but the resources to defend themselves so that they could do his work. That's why they only needed two swords. Now, Peter got hasty. He that is quick to draw the sword is going to pay for it. Peter got hasty and attacked the wrong person. But here Christ wanted to make sure his disciples were protected. There is a time to buy a sword for protection of the innocent and for defending ourselves in such a way that we can do the Lord's work. That was what's spoken here for that night in Gethsemane so that the things that Christ said concerning his disciples would come to pass, that is necessary today. We need to take a stand. We need to be willing to defend the innocent. We need to be willing to defend our families not hastily drawing swords like Peter in the garden, but doing what has to be done so that we can carry out the Lord's work. A lot of interesting things here in Luke 22. 
If Jesus never intended the righteous to defend themselves, he wouldn't have told his disciples to go get a couple of swords. I started to introduce my sermon in Charlotte the other day. There were a couple of police by. I did share a few things about how uh, I appreciate law enforcement, but you can't trust them anymore like you used to be able to. I I said it loud enough uh, because Charlotte's got a bad reputation of just shooting people. Uh, that are kneeling down beside cars. Uh, The man that was shot some weeks ago, I mean, anybody that's told 15 times to put his gun down and doesn't and then gets shot, he's no one to blame but himself. But any cop who would draw a gun and blast somebody that's obviously not a threat, uh, they deserve whatever's coming to them too. That female cop should never, ever wear a badge again, in my opinion. So I shared a few thoughts about this, and I thought to just let everybody know the ones that hate the street preachers. Just so you guys know, I do have a gun in my pocket and I will use it to defend the preacher. So just be aware of that. Now open up your Bibles. I'm going to speak with you about the things of God. So I thought to say that. Maybe I should have. We need to say things that no one else will say. We need to let people know that you're not going to come in here and run over us and silence us. You can dox us all day long. I think we need to dox those. These judges that make these unlawful rulings, they should be doxxed. They should be held in contempt. You know, the judge that throws out these abortion laws that are being passed in Alabama, in Louisiana, in Mississippi, what will tell you a lot about the motives of these lawmakers is how they'll respond to these unlawful rulings. Will they just go quietly into the night? Or will they enforce the law regardless? call up the state militias and say, we're not going to kill babies in this town. And if you want to send the federal authorities down here to force us to do so, we'll meet on the street. But we don't have people. Half of these people in the pro-life movement aren't really pro-life because they won't go beyond, they won't make any sacrifice beyond words. The real medal of these state legislatures is will they hold these rulings in contempt and stand against the federal government. There were those in this state that did in 1860 when President Lincoln ordered the state of North Carolina to raise a certain number of troops to go and invade and put down the rebellion in South Carolina. North Carolina's governor said, no, we won't do it. And you're not marching through our state to do it either. So if you want to try to, we'll meet you on the field of battle. Virginia said the same thing, and they met at a place called Manassas Junction. And a whole bunch of Yankees went running back to Washington. That's what I'd like to see today from those that really claim to care about life. But we're not going to see it. Don't put your hope in that stuff. Don't put your hope in these legislators. Let's look to the Messiah. We need Him to rule. Him to reign. 1 Corinthians 6, 1-11. through 11.
judge between this, between his brethren. But brother goeth to the to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Okay. We're gonna go ahead and stop there. Um the saints are going to judge the world. That's what Paul says. Paul is affirming what John sees here in Revelation 20, verse 4. The saints, the church is going to judge the world. Not just the world, but angels. And if these things that we see in Revelation 24 are true, then are we not much more qualified to judge things in this life? Why are we in the church taking fellow believers to court before unbelievers. Believers have no right biblically in the church to go to court to settle a matter between another believer. That's taking spiritual matters in the body of Christ and bringing it before the unbelievers. Why would we do so? If we're going to judge the world, we ought to be able to settle differences and conflicts within the body of Christ. And we ought to listen to the opinions of the least esteemed in the body. If we're in a place, and this is some advice I shared with the local church we were trying to counsel a couple weekends ago. If you all have division and a conflict in here, you need to settle it. People don't need to pick up their balls and go home. There's only two biblical reasons why you should leave a local church with whom you've yoked in fellowship. One, false teaching. The gospel is not preeminent. You're not being fed spiritually. You need to leave. The other is if with the blessing of your local body, you are sent out to serve the Lord in another place in another area of need. Those are the biblical reasons. But because you get offended, because you're confronted about sin, to pick up your ball and go home, that's not right. That is sin. Because that is not of faith. And it says in Romans that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's why it's sin for someone who's been raped to abort their baby. That's why it's sin for someone who is the, who's pregnant through incest to abort their baby. Because those acts are not acts of faith. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I didn't say it. God said it. God said it. But we ought to practice the church in settling our differences is our dress rehearsal for the coming authority we have. If, have. if we have a conflict in here, this is what I told that church, and you've got a place of disagreement between two parties, what you need to do is ask the opinion of those that never speak up. See what they're thinking. The least esteemed in the church, their judgment has value. Set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Why don't we listen to these things? Paul writes these things knowing what John is seeing here. We're being poor stewards of this time of preparation in light of what's coming. And uh, as a result, we won't have much authority. Maybe... Christ will find us worthy of one talent or five, but I want to be the ten talents. Psalm 149. Praise you, Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of the saints. 
Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in, in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praise of God be in their mouth. And the two-edged sword in their hand. To execute vengeance upon the heathen. And punishment upon, upon the people. To bind their kings with chains. And their uh, nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This honor written. This honor uh, have all the saints. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the saints be joyful. What is the honor of all his saints? The honor of all his saints is to execute vengeance and punishment upon the heathen and the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters to execute upon them judgment. This is the honor of the saints, to rule judicially with Christ in his kingdom, judging angels and men, binding kings, holding people accountable. This is the honor of all his saints. Therefore, John saw thrones and them that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. It's funny that let the high praises of God, verse 6, be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. What, what's the two-edged sword? Two-edged sword in my hand. It's by the word of God we'll have judicial authority in this kingdom. And let's exercise it now amongst ourselves. Let's prepare for that day by being servants one to another. By settling our differences. By working out these things without taking it before the unbeliever. Jude 14 and 15. That's good. That's good. Um, it's an interesting passage. Uh, Jude quotes a prophecy of Enoch. Remember, Enoch was a type of the church before the flood taken out, raptured out before the judgment. Noah was a type preserved through like Israel. But Enoch here, the seventh from Adam. Here we have the word of God witnessing that between Adam and Noah were not gaps in the genealogies. There weren't untold ages of time here. Those genealogies are one generation after another. And Enoch was the seventh from Adam. He wasn't the 17th or the 27th. He was the seventh. And he saw a day when the Lord would come with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment. And so all the feces that's being tossed around on Facebook, people are going to give an account for what they've written on social media. 
they're going to give an account for every idle word, every foolish statement, and every tweet, the president included, and all the idiots that get on there. The nanosecond that the president tweets something, some of the stuff he tweets is good. I like it. But when it becomes tweet after tweet after tweet and very little action, then I don't start to like it as much. If there were action behind it, it would take on a no, whole new uh, 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 um, dimension. But the, the people, the same fools, you can go and watch and it's these fools. They got something to say, some accusation, some conspiracy theorists. Filthy, filthy language. There's a couple of Jewish brothers that are some of the first to get on there like they know everything and just use filthy language and lies in response to every one of his tweets. I read where they, I think they were kicked off of Twitter for using false accounts, and I think it's great. I actually responded to each of them and told them they were both a disgrace to the Jewish people. They were the synagogue of Satan. Wicked people. But people are going to give account. If you said you're going to do something and you never did it, you're going to give account. When you tweet, when you write on social media, you may as be speaking. May as well be speaking. And Jesus said, men will give account. They'll give an account. The thrones and those that sat upon them, that is the harvest of the first resurrection. That is the church. Revelation 20 verse 4. Thrones, they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. That judgment is presented elsewhere as crowns, crowns of authority. The crowns that are received as reward are visible symbols of the level of authority we will have in that kingdom. I don't know about you, I'd be happy to be a bailiff in the courtroom, but I would love to be the judge. Let's make sure we're ready for that day. Ready to do the job our Lord gives us. Then there's the second company. The souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. This is the second company. These are the tribulation saints. These are those that are lost when the rapture takes place, mostly Gentiles that have never truly heard the gospel. Jewish witnesses are sealed and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Revelation 7, they go out and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, the gospel of the kingdom, and the fruit of their ministry is this innumerable company of Gentiles who pay for their faith with their lives. We see these tribulation saints in Revelation, they're referred to in Revelation 6.11. Remember the fifth seal judgment. All of the martyrs of the ages crying out to God, When, Lord, will you avenge what has been done to us on the earth? And they're told to rest, to wait a little while until their fellow servants and their brethren are also martyred. So God won't take vengeance until the tribulation saints are martyred as well. In Revelation 7, we're shown that these tribulation saints are the fruit of the preaching of the 144,000 Jews. We've talked about that extensively in our study of this book. They're told there that they serve the Lamb. Their purpose is to serve the Lamb in His kingdom. 
Revelation 12, verse 17. Satan goes after Israel when he's kicked out of heaven. Israel is preserved. She is hidden by God in the deserts. She's protected. We talked about ancient Moab and Edom and Petra and these other things. And so the devil, angry, goes after the remnant of her seed. The remnant of her seed are the tribulation saints. He goes after them. In Revelation 15, we see a sea of glass mingled with fire. And we see these tribulation saints, an empty sea. And Revelation 4 and 5 is now full of people with harps because they've been killed in the great tribulation. And that sea has fire. That firmament is starting to melt because it's going to open up and God's going to, Christ is going to step through. We talked about all that. But they're gathered on the sea, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And they're given a part in the administration of the seven vile judgments. These are the tribulation saints. The church is given judicial authority in the millennial kingdom. The tribulation saints are given administrative or executive authority. We know this because in Revelation 7, it's told that they specifically serve the Lamb. They are resurrected at the end of the tribulation like the church that is resurrected at the beginning. Both of these companies live and reign. They live again. The first resurrection is when the church and the tribulation saints, along with the Old Testament saints, receive a new body without sin. No Adamic nature. To live and reign with Christ in the millennium. The form of punishment, we are told, that the, many of these tribulation saints will receive for their faith in the tribulation is beheading. Now, people are real reactionary with the scriptures. You know, they look around, all oh, the Muslims, you know, or beheading people in the desert and chopping off heads. So, so the Antichrist must be a Muslim. He must be a Muslim. Islam's taken over the world. That's the kind of reaction people have. Um, we don't want to look at the Scripture in a reactionary way. Muslims are too stupid to take over the world. Historically, Islam has dumbed down societies. And the societies that embrace it, just go there. Look at how filthy and dirty it is. That's not a racist statement. That's a factual statement. It's not racist. It's factual. Just go. Dirty, dirty. Go to Jerusalem, and the moment you step out of a Jewish area into a Muslim area, you don't need signs. You don't need welcome to the West Bank. It's as we say in Spanish, que obvio. Obvious. Eric and I were walking back from the old city of Jerusalem, went from a nice town, and all of a sudden we noticed we're on a grassy hillside. It looks like Kathmandu. It smells like Kathmandu. Because we stepped into the Muslim area. So this is not a reference to Islam here. Other people have beheaded people. Paul was beheaded. Beheading was the punishment that many of the early martyrs faced. And it will be what the latter martyrs face. This will be a punishment that's more than death. It's a punishment of public shame. Instituted by the Antichrist. For those who refuse his mark. These are those that are going to be beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. They are those that did not receive the mark. They refused it. They refused to worship the beast. To receive the mark is an act of worship. 
We talked about that in some of the previous messages. They were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. I touched upon this at the end of the message last week. The witness of Jesus and the word of God are inextricably tied together. The living word, the written word. If you are a true witness for Jesus, you are a witness for the word of God. And if you're a witness for the word of God, you're a witness for Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach. Can't have it both ways. Therefore, there's no such thing as a Jewish witness for the Bible that doesn't believe Yeshua is the Jewish Messiah. No such thing. No such thing as a Bible-believing Jew or Bible-believing rabbi who rejects Jesus as the Messiah. In talking to my friend Yossi or Yosef the other day, he was sharing some different things. And When he first moved to the area, he met one of the rabbis down there that's kind of over a... There's a couple of sizable synagogues in Charlotte. And he said the rabbi approached him one night and he was all dressed like... You know, they dress like their chief rabbi dressed in Eastern Europe back in the 18 or 1700s where it was really, really cold and you would wear a big furry hat and you'd wear a big old trench coat because it was cold outside. But they want to be just like their rabbi and dress just like him. He never intended them to wear big furry hats in Israel when it's 100 degrees outside in the desert. But they follow men. Religion follows men. Men, men, men. But he, he said he was a pro... He, he, he ran into this rabbi and the rabbi came up to him and says to him, got right in, he said, he got right in my face. This guy, this friend of mine looks very Jewish. And he's like, I don't know you. Who are you? Like, you know, he, the rabbi's supposed to know everybody in the Jewish community. And the guy says to me, this is what I wanted to say to him. Now, I'm not going to repeat what he said, but it, it was funny. It was funny. But he's like, well, in Hebrew, he's like, well, I'm Israeli, I'm Jewish, or, no, or whatever. And he said, the rabbi said to him, there's only, the only type of quote-unquote Jewish people that look like you or even dress like you are, are those that follow this Jesus. And he's like, well, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. I'm Israeli, I'm Jewish, I fought in the IDF, he spoke Hebrew. And he said that the rabbi just got this glare on his face and got right up in there and said, in this just pharisaical attitude, who is Jesus to you? And my friend said he looked him in the eye with that same stark look and that same gruff voice and said, Ha-melech ha-olam, the king of the universe. He said that rabbi made a 180-degree turn and walked down the street. Amen. Amen. There's no such thing as a Bible-believing Jew that doesn't see Jesus Christ as HaMelech HaOlam, the king of the universe. My friend's a Bible-believing Jew. That rabbi is from the synagogue of Satan. Most of this garbage going on in Israel in the modern state, remember, there's a sinister purpose here. Let's don't be naive. Rabbinic Judaism is a synagogue of Satan. Praise God, he saves people out of it. I've had testimonies of rabbis confronted with the word of God. God saves people out of that. Biblical Judaism and rabbinic Judaism are not the same, and we should not be contributing to the spread of rabbinic Judaism. It's the spirit of Antichrist. But that's who Jesus is, HaMelech HaOlam. He's the king of the universe. We ought not be ashamed to say it. 
Just as there's no such thing as a Bible-believing Jew who rejects Jesus as the Messiah, neither is there such thing as a Bible-believing Christian who thinks there's other ways to God but Jesus the Messiah. It's no different for Jew and Gentile. Who is Jesus to you? The only way you can't get there through Islam. Do all Muslims go to hell? Yes. Muslims who die in their Islamic faith go to hell. 100% of them. 100% of Buddhists and Catholics and atheists and false teachers and Mormons and JWs who die with their hope and their faith in the teachings of their religions will go to hell. I make no apology. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And no one can even come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. John 6, 44. Who is Jesus to me? The only way. No such thing. These are those that are beheaded because they have a witness for Jesus as he's revealed here. A man like Yossi in the tribulation will be arrested and murdered for, for that sake. I don't believe there's any such thing as a Bible-believing Christian who would say that it's okay to abort children in, in cases of rape and incest. That would say it's okay for homosexuals to get married. You might be born again. You might be confused. You might need some discipleship. You might need to take your eyes off of yourself and your lost family members and stop making excuses for them and go to the Word of God and be a watchman in their life instead of making excuses. But you're not Bible-believing. You need to be Bible-believing. You need to get an education. But you're not Bible-believing if you think these things are all right. The law of God in the Old Testament is very clear that a child is not to be put to death for the sins of his parents. The witness of Jesus and the Word of God married in the tribulation. And they should be now. Both of these companies, the church and the tribulation saints, they live, that means they're resurrected with new bodies, and they reign with Christ, what? A thousand years. A righteous judiciary, judiciary, the church will be part of the millennial government. A righteous executive branch will be part of the tribulation. Righteous law enforcement. The word reign here in the, in, the, in, the, in the original language means to exercise kingly and governmental power. In other words, the church and the tribulation saints will exercise the power of the king in his stead. We'll do his bit. We will be his ministers. <coughs> Visible ministers carrying out His will and happy to do so. That is a joyous thing to think about. Therefore, in light of these truths, in light of the fact that those of us born again will live and reign with Christ a thousand years, a thousand years, exactly what it says, along with the tribulation saints, you know, we, we engage in reaching the lost sheep of the house of Israel incessantly today, whether they believe or not, because we're hoping at least we're sowing seeds that might water, be watered and grow during the tribulation. Because God is going to raise up 144,000 Jewish witnesses to preach and bring people into the kingdom that have never heard the gospel. But if you've heard the gospel, or your family's heard the gospel, that's not the people that will believe in the tribulation. 
Second Thessalonians is clear. God will send a spirit of delusion. They'll believe a lie. But there's many who've never been truly confronted with it. So we're sowing seeds in our ministry, not only to build up the church, but for what God's going to do in the tribulation. Maybe that girl that approached me in Charlotte is someone that's going to remember that encounter. I gave her one of our cards that has a messianic prophecy on it in Hebrew. Very clear who the Messiah is. Maybe that seed planted is going to bear fruit when the church is gone. Maybe she will be one seed to go and preach in that time. And those who listen and believe will be beheaded, but yet rule and reign with Christ a thousand years. Because of these things, therefore, and I'm going to, going to wrap it up here. Therefore, Colossians. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Because of these things. This is not future cloudland stuff that has no practical application today. Because we will live and reign with Christ a thousand years. Therefore, verse 23, Colossians 3. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Therefore, my friends, whatever you do at your job, in the dojo, in your home, when you go about daily errands, when you drive the mission team to Atlanta so they can go to Peru, do it as if you're doing it for the Lord. Because we have a reward and an inheritance coming. This is training. This is training for the future. And we need to look at it as such. 2 Timothy 2.12. Since we're going to reign with Christ, it says here, if we suffer, we'll reign with Him. So a necessary part of reigning with Christ in the future is suffering for Him now. They go together. They follow the example of Christ. Christ suffered in His first coming that He might reign as the perfect King in His second. We suffer now and we will reign with Him. Part of that training is the suffering. I hate it. I don't like it. I don't seek it. But it's training. Just like Bethany. I'll give you an example. When she was doing her brown belt test, we, we, we put on gloves and she had to do what we call kumite or fighting, sparring. And I got out there on the dojo, and I went after her. I scared her. I came around with a spinning crescent kick that just about knocked her head off her shoulders. I felt bad, really hard. She stood her ground. Her nose started bleeding from the fight. She stood her ground, and she endured. Ever since that test, she is a completely different person when she fights. The other night... I had to get into, oh my goodness, I got to protect myself. I can't toy around with her. That was training. She suffered, but now she has no fear. And I've watched her go after people in a way she wouldn't before. That's what suffering does. I didn't mean to hit her that hard. I didn't do it on purpose. But she stood her ground, she endured, and she's better prepared to defend herself against an enemy now. Same for us spiritually. We prepare now through suffering. Do it all unto the Lord. I'm probably going to sit here and preach these words and then I'm going to eat these words. So I realize that. I'm going to be forced to do what I'm telling you. Romans 8, 17. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Christ's inheritance is a throne and a kingdom in the millennium. The angel told Mary, God will, he will sit upon the throne of his father David. That's his inheritance. We are joint heirs with him in that kingdom. That means we're going to inherit authority as well. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The future glorification is dependent upon the present suffering. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13 says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. He suffered without the city, put to death on the side of a road in a rock quarry of all places. A site of the execution of common criminals. He suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Guys, we have no continuing city here. Nothing here of any eternal value. Not our government, not even our country. We seek one to come, just like Abraham did. we got to go without the camp and be willing to suffer now so we can reign then. Suffering now and reigning then that John sees in Revelation 4 are tied together. Right now, the kingdom of God, the literal spiritual kingdom, reigns and rules within our hearts. Jesus said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is within you. Paul said, it's not with meat and drink, but in righteousness. The kingdom of God is literal and it's spiritual. And it rules and reigns in our hearts now. But one day, the kingdom of heaven, which is also literal and physical, will come and it is our future inheritance. Right now, the kingdom of God is spiritual. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said. It's spiritual. We live for Christ. We suffer with Him. Because the kingdom of heaven, which is literal and physical, will one day come. And that is our inheritance. You see, in the millennium, the kingdom of heaven, that which is physical, and the kingdom of God, that which is spiritual, become one. And we are part and parcel as the saints, the governing authority. With the Old Testament saints, with the tribulation saints, the first fruits of the resurrection, the harvest of the resurrection, and the gleanings. I'm going to end with verse 4. But I want to share three final verses. Ruling and reigning. The millennium. Numbers 14.21. All the way back, God made it very clear. Israel rejected the land. They were afraid at Kadesh Barnea to go into the land. They were afraid of giants who eventually were just a footnote in the campaigns of Joshua and Caleb. They, they had a wicked heart of unbelief. And as a result, they did not enter into that Canaan rest. And when, when they came back and complained and God pass judgment upon it. He made sure they knew. Numbers 14, 21. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
You've rejected me and my promises today. You've rejected my rest. But as surely as I live, there will be a day when the entire earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's when the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God become one. <coughs> Habakkuk 2.14 makes this very clear. Or Habakkuk is how it's pronounced in Hebrew. Habakkuk 2.14 For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, one. References to the millennial kingdom. And then Zechariah 14.9 And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord. This is the kingdom. And in that kingdom there are thrones and those that sit upon them. There are those who are beheaded, who are raised to live and, and have authority. And they live and reign with Christ a thousand years. This is the third time we see the number thousand in these verses. It's very literal. It's very spiritual. It's very physical. But the rest of the dead, verse 5, did not live, lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead, the rich man in Luke 16, came all the way through history down to those who perish in the sealed trumpet and vile judgments, those who fall at the battle of Armageddon, your loved ones who died and didn't receive Christ. The rest of the dead didn't live again until the thousand years were fulfilled. That's a whole lot of people that die in this life without Christ. They're in a giant, gaping, holding cell that's never satisfied. Hell is never satisfied. It opens its mouth wide, we're told in the Old Testament. And it's full of people. They won't live again until the end of this kingdom. You die and you go to hell, you have no part in these things. Oh, you'll be resurrected. The first resurrection, verse 5, this is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the first fruits, Jesus and the Old Testament saints, the harvest, the church at the rapture, and the tribulation saints and the Jewish remnant, the witnesses. That's the first resurrection. Those that are part of the first resurrection will live and reign with Christ. There's a second resurrection, but that second resurrection leads to the second death, which is eternal. We're going to see that at the end of chapter 20. But all the lost, dead in the earth now, have no part in this millennial kingdom. That's a lot of people that are held without bail through the millennium. We can't stomach it. We don't want to talk about it, but it's true. If we're watchmen, faithful watchmen who love our fellow man, we'll warn them of these things. Rest of the dead tells us two things. There are many who are dead that are not resurrected. All the lost, they're held without bail. But of the dead specifies that the rest... 
Not the first resurrection, not the church, not the tribulation of saints. There's a rest. There's another group of people. And of that rest, some of them are dead. Some of them are not. So the phrase of the dead tells us that there are others besides the church and the tribulation saints that do remain alive in the millennium, that do survive. Next time there's four, I want to talk about four unresurrected groups that will survive the tribulation and they will live during the millennium. They are not resurrected. They survive. They, there is no devil that deceives them anymore, but they still have that old Adam's nature. We, as stewards of the government, are resurrected without sin, without the old nature. We rule and reign in righteousness over these. There will be a law. These will be expected to follow. If there's obedience, there's blessing. If there's disobedience, there's consequences. Very simple. That's going to involve coming to Jerusalem annually to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. It's going to involve a constitution as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to involve Israel actually keeping the law like they were supposed to as a testimony to the nations. So I look forward to sharing some of that because we don't, you may never have heard of any of these things, but they're there in the Old Testament. <clears throat> but praise God, it is a blessed thing to be part of that first resurrection. Mm -hmm. Verse 5. So I'll end with that today. You know, you can be part of that first resurrection very simply. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came once to suffer for the sins of mankind, a sacrifice to pay for our crimes. He was perfect without sin. And so as a perfect sacrifice, he wasn't killed. The Jews didn't kill him. If I'm Peter or Paul and I'm preaching to my own people, I'm going to say, you killed Christ. But I'm not. Just like I'll stand on a street corner in Charlotte and I said some pretty tough stuff about my fellow countrymen the other day. But I'm not going to sit around a table and listen to a bunch of Europeans talk about my country. Same thing. We don't go in to, to Jewish outreach with that attitude. We go with the spirit of humility. Because if it weren't for them, we couldn't know the truth. But um, I don't even know where I was going with that point. Nobody killed Christ. He laid his life down. He suffered. He died and was buried. And he rose up from the grave on the third day. Therefore, God commands us to repent. That is to acknowledge our sin. To turn from it. And to say, God, you're right. I'm a sinner. I need you. And then to believe, that is, put our trust on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That it's sufficient to take away our sins. And to put our trust in that. And God said he will give us eternal life. He will give us a new heart. He will give us his Holy Spirit. Those things are a free gift. There's some of you kids in here that pray, ask every week, will you pray for me to get saved? Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do it. We're happy to do it. But you know what it takes to get saved. So the time is to stop asking and to start doing what God has commanded. Because of these things, God commands us to believe on Jesus. He doesn't offer us, He commands us. Because there's coming a day when this same Jesus will rule and reign in righteousness and judge this earth. And you can be a part of that.
you've put your faith and trust in Messiah. And the greatest thing about it is it's a free gift. Can't be earned through religion. Come as you are. Come as you are. But this Christ who can save you loves you too much to keep you as you are. That's why come as you are, but leave changed. Those who come as they are and leave as they are never met the Lord Christ. I came as I was at age nine. I left as I was. I walked the aisle as I was. I walked back to my seat as I was. But when I was 17 years old, I came as I was. I left changed. Not perfect. Still got some kinks to work out. Still training for that future kingdom. But changed. And guys, it's a free gift. So simple even a child could understand. So don't be rebellious. Don't let your continual asking or praying or yes, I know, I need to get saved, I want to get saved. Just get saved. I'm talking to several of y'all in here. Just get saved. Get right with God. And these things are your inheritance. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, it's many, 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 many faithful promises that even in these dark days we can fall upon, we can rejoice over, we can rest upon, but also sobering truths that give us cause to pause. Lord, we must be watchmen in these days. We must warn the wicked. We must tell them the truth because nobody else will. They're never going to hear it. We're thankful that one day we'll live and reign with you. We're thankful for what's coming to this earth, but now, as you suffered here, we are here to suffer, to be vexed, but to endure and to point others to the truth. So help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to judge amongst ourselves faithfully and to hold each other accountable, Lord, and motivated by the governmental authority that awaits your saints. Lord, that we might do your will and your work faithfully here so we can be entrusted with it in the kingdom age to come. I just pray you would help us to be that way even this week. And whatsoever our hand finds to do, to do it with all our might and to do it heartily as unto you. Thank you, Lord, that as your cross gave way to a crown and a throne, so for us as we take up our cross daily, it will yield and give way to a crown and a throne. Who are we to judge anyone, Lord, with such authority? But you have declared it so. We don't deserve any of these things, so we praise you and we magnify you. Lord, we pray for our president. We pray, God, you would open his eyes to the truth. Even if he were to lose his office of the presidency, Lord, even if he were to lose everything and yet find Christ, those of us who are Christians would rejoice. We would rejoice and count him as one of our own. So we pray you'd open his eyes, you'd save him, Lord, that he could have spiritual eyes and be willing to give up everything for the gospel. We just pray that you would do that in his life, in the life of his family and others in authority. And the wicked that would try to overthrow your plan and purpose for the ages, Lord, let it be to them as it was to the enemies of the Lord in the days of Deborah. Bless our food, Lord, and our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.